listening to Green and Gold, the cannabis podcast that talks about basically everything that affects you, the people. In this week's episode, we're talking about one of the fastest growing and quickest changing aspects of the industry, employment. There is a huge range of jobs opening up in the field of and related to cannabis. There's the typical stuff you probably think of like bud tenders and growers, but there's also people who specialize in things like cannabis-friendly real estate. Or there's companies that basically build their entire brand out of making the packaging for edibles or cannabis flower in California. I mean, you could find a job working for a high-tech lab that tests products for pesticides, or you could work for a tech firm that builds the super special secure web infrastructure that's designed to basically monitor product and keep inventory of shops. Some of these jobs require a college degree or higher. Many don't. A lot offer pretty good living wages, like a $50,000 store manager gig or an even better six-figure salary working in a lab. Some even offer extra incentives like equity in the company. According to the job site ZipRecruiter, pot job postings increased 693% from the end of 2016 to the end of 2017. And I would only imagine this continues to go up um, now that pot is legalized in California and increasingly elsewhere. So there's no question that the cannabis business is an exploding market. But working in weed may also not be as chill as you think. Some businesses, in fact, it sounds like most of them, don't let you smoke on the job. Others require a pretty thorough understanding of the industry, or if you're dealing with customers, a pretty good understanding of the products you're selling. So to better understand the complicated dynamics of working in weed, I talked to two people, a CEO at a recruitment firm and a union organizer. First up is Carson Humiston. She's the founder of Vanxt, a kind of headhunting operation that helps connect weed companies with potential employees. Here's our talk. Can you give me kind of an overall picture of the landscape of job opportunities out there right now for people looking to get into the industry? Sure. You know, right now um, in the industry, the, the last report that came out was by Leafly, and it said there was about 149,000 full-time legal jobs in the space. And now this number is expected to jump to about 290,000 by the year 2020. So obviously a huge Mm -hmm. increase in job opportunities. And, you know, I've I've also read some articles by various, there's, you know, whether it be new frontier data or BDS analytics that say, if you're looking at the jobs direct jobs and then you're looking at the indirect jobs the indirect jobs such as the all the ancillary companies kind of supporting the space that creates in itself another 50 60,000 jobs you know and when you think about that you think all right right now our office right whoever was the whoever was our broker helping us find this office while they don't work for a cannabis specific company a portion of their revenue is coming from a cannabis company. And so that's sort of an indirect job. And I think there's a lot of those. And so we need to take all those into consideration as well. So it's really an exciting time for the industry and for the jobs being created in the industry and and, and for 
anybody looking to get in the industry. What are some of the best steps to take? Um, obviously, because it is a new industry, um, there's not necessarily a huge pool of people with cannabis-specific experience. You know, there are bud tenders, there are growers. Um, but what what do you recommend for someone looking to find a job in the industry? How, where should they start even? I think it's a great point you brought up about the experience. You don't need to have cannabis industry experience to work in the States, right? Given how many jobs will be created, it would basically be impossible for everybody that's looking to get a job in the space to have experience because if there's only 150,000 people working in the space right now and it's going to get to 300,000 over the next few years, right, there's no way that people can have the experience. And so what I always like to think about is that whatever you're currently doing right now, there's a great chance that those skills can be applied to this industry. This industry is really no different than any other industry in typical business um, setups. And so every business has a finance department. Every business has a human resources department. Every business has a marketing department. Many resources have, many companies have uh, legal departments. And so there's tons of opportunities for people to take their skills and bring them to this space. One area that I recommend people to start getting their, their, their toes wet or whatever that saying is <laughs> in the industry is to go to a trade show or to a conference. Because when you go to a trade show and conference, it really gives you a broad overview of what's happening in the industry. There's all different speakers you can listen to. The speakers speak about their backgrounds, how they got into the space, and the company that they're working with, and often a particular topic. Mm-hmm. And then also when you're at the conference, you can walk around and actually speak to the exhibitors who are the companies, and you can ask them what does your company do? What is your company's biggest challenges? What is your company's growth plan? And you can get an understanding for what all these companies do, how they impact the industry, and where the companies are going. I'm curious what you see as the biggest differences between the perceived reality and the actual reality of the industry. It's an industry just like every other industry. And if you work in the alcohol industry, you're not taking shots of tequila all day long, or you're not drinking beers all day long. So if you work in the cannabis industry, you're not smoking weed all day long. Just any successful cannabis business, any business at all, you can't function if you're high. And so I think that's just a massive misconception. And I think there are more and more people that are becoming part of this space, similar to the alcohol industry, where they, they don't, they're not even consumers. For me, for example, when I joined the cannabis industry, I am not a huge cannabis consumer. I am a big cannabis advocate. Fully believe in it. I've seen the medical effects on actually family members. I I am a, a big fan of it for recreational purposes and for economic reasons. But myself personally, I am not uh, consuming cannabis. Can you give me an idea of who the people are who are getting these jobs? I mean, is it a is it a younger group? Is it a diverse cross section? Like, what type of people have you found are really seeking out um, you know jobs working with weed? It's very diverse right? At least in terms of the people that we are placing. I wouldn't, I couldn't give you an exact characteristic. I will tell you one thing that's pretty cool is that 53% of the folks who we've placed are, are minorities, which is, you know, really awesome. Obviously we're not placing everybody in the industry, but one Mm -hmm. unique thing about this industry is that since it's so new, there's an advantage. You know, I, I think there's also a big advantage for women because, you know, there's a lot of current women in the space and our voices will kind of help shape how 
um, women in the industry are viewed in the coming years. You know, we really have the opportunity to build the cannabis industry into the most inclusive industry in the world. People have the opportunity to get in now and really shape how it will unfold. That was Carson Humiston, founder of headhunting firm Vangst. Next, we're talking to Robert Schlela, a social equity researcher and policy organizer for UFCW Local 770, a leading union in the cannabis space in L.A. He spent years conducting research in L.A.'s cannabis business and gives us some insight as to why workers in this industry are organizing now and how L.A. dispensaries may look a lot more diverse than their ownership. Just a note, we had to catch him running in between all sorts of organizing meetings, so you might hear a little bit of traffic in the background. I wanted to start off because this took me by surprise when I spoke with a few bud tenders and I learned that they were unionized, and I know this is your specialty, so give us the background on it, because I know it's some people may be surprised to hear that there is a union in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. No, actually, I was really surprised myself. And that's how I first really got into trying to understand what was going on with workers, because I met some workers who were part of the union as it was first growing in 2012, 13. And they were members of the United Food and Commercial Workers, uh, Local 770 here in Los Angeles. And they worked at a shop in Silver Lake, CCA. And hearing their stories, you know, I was kind of intrigued by how labor got into what was still at the time kind of a gray space. And the union, it turns out, uh, particularly the United Food and Commercial Workers, which is the first major union to start organizing cannabis workers um, in the United States, really came into the space at a local level. International kind of approved of it and was into the idea because the United Food and Commercial Workers organizes uh, folks who work in Rite Aid and other pharmacy spaces, and they saw the connection to the medical marijuana piece. Oh, okay. Interesting. This particular local um, has kind of really taken the lead on organizing workers here in Los Angeles. The union itself, UFCW, besides organizing people and representing work to CVS and other places like that, represent folks at the major grocery stores. Vaughn, Albertson, as well as food processing workers in the meatpacking industry. And in total, this local represents people from Los Angeles all the way up to Santa Barbara and some 40,000 workers. Oh, wow. It's a huge, yeah, huge union, really focused more on like the intersection of service sector and manufacturing, which is really how cannabis works. It's a little bit of all of that, that supply chain. And so... In 2012 and 2013, it actually came in, you know, they were hearing from workers who were dealing with raids and things like that. And the industry itself saw that the the union was interested and really kind of asked asked them to come in also in a kind of interesting twist because they saw the political power of unions in Los Angeles. Um, Mm -hmm. For the last two decades, unions... Since Justice for Janitors, run by mostly undocumented workers and workers of color, have really 
changed the way unions work from about 30 years where they were kind of on the decline to in Los Angeles really picking up as a way to give voice to all of these people who work kind of at the lowest wages. So the union came in and organized around the ban that was proposed in 2012. And they managed to gather thousands of signatures in a matter of days to reverse the ban and to put a ballot initiative forward. And then from there, we got Prop D in a very kind of complex process, which wasn't a perfect fit, but it was what came out of different interventions. And since then, you know, the union has really spent time actually organizing workers on the front line. Right now, um, after all of that, UFCW represents some 26 shops, but that's growing very rapidly post Prop 64. Just to kind of put, help put this all in context for people, what's the benefit, specifically in the cannabis industry, what's the benefit of being part of a union like this? And kind of who, I know you said it represents um, 26 shops, who is included in this? It's it's everybody below management? Or can you just give us kind of that idea? Yeah, absolutely. Working in this space has not always been the best for workers themselves. Mm-hmm. especially during the era of like the gray era and medical marijuana, when things were coming from kind of the underground space and folks were learning how to run dispensaries and things like that. Most standard labor law was not being followed. People weren't getting breaks. People weren't necessarily getting even pay stubs to be able to, I mean, a lot of folks were getting paid in cash. Many people were getting paid in weed, which it's great. Yeah, you can resell it. It's wonderful, but it's value changes rapidly and you can't like bring weed home to the bank, you know? So, and there was also a serious issues that we were hearing from a lot of women workers in particular around sexual harassment, the way mm-hmm. the women in dispensaries are asked to perform in certain ways and all these things, you know, really motivated a union can work for workers, right? It can be a way for them to both as a whole, how to have a collective voice in how a shop is going to work. And works out, And specifically, like you said, it's everyone from management down. Gotcha. So all those folks get a collective voice. But they also, on the day-to-day level, have a grievance process. So if things go down, if there's an issue, a conflict around, for example, a big one is that people are always being accused of stealing in shops. Mm-hmm. Whether that's true or not, it's. I think, you know, from interviews I've done with workers and from workers themselves, it's a lot of time it's mismanagement and then folks, workers themselves are blamed. So then if you're accused of stealing and you're a worker, say you're a, uh, you're in charge of, you're a cannabis consultant or a butt tender, depending on the shop, you can go to the union, you can have a fair process in which somebody will advocate for you and be able to actually, you know, have everything documented and things like that. And you can't just get fired, you know, at will whenever you want. So you're up based on a contract. Now we're seeing post Prop 64, we have had to renegotiate contracts with a lot of folks. Okay. And the contracts are getting more robust, right? We're seeing health insurance for the first time. We're seeing a very higher, uh, much higher pay scale and a series of raises. And we're also getting the chance now to organize cultivators, to organize manufacturers, to organize the folks working in the entirety of the cannabis supply chain. Okay, great. That's what, that's what I was going to ask. So it won't it it the idea is for it ultimately to be open to all these aspects of the industry. Yeah, exactly. And it's already happening because some of the vertically integrated shops are already signing contracts that are more expansive with us. Um, mm-hmm. That will include uh, their cultivation sites 
those have always paid cultivation has always paid a little bit better, but there it's also down to comes down to worker safety questions and all these other things that they're also getting to see for the first time. So it's really good in that sense. You know, I've been able to like speak to folks both who've been in shops that have been organized for a while and folks who are in an unorganized shop who really don't have a place to turn when things go bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've, I've done, you know, one interview with like five young women who all worked at the same shop and all walked out at the same time because one by one they're accused of stealing all while they're actually, you know, being sexually harassed by their manager and there's like nothing they can do. And for them, I was like, look, the best for now, while the industry figures things out, is to find a shop that's, you know, where you can have much more protection, especially as things grow, especially as the profit margins get higher and things get a little bit more corporatized, especially as we see more medmen. We're going to need a lot more protections for workers. Um, and we're going to need them to have a, a voice, and they want to have a voice. The workers have the kind of intimate knowledge of how to work with medical marijuana patients, they have the intimate knowledge of cultivation, of manufacturing, they really built the industry. And for so long, you know, there's such a focus when we talk about policy on the owners, because they're the ones who show up at the hearings the most. They're the ones who are always talking to the press. But the fact is that knowledge resides with the workers, and oftentimes they don't get the credit and pay they deserve for that. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is an opportunity for them to have that, because they've also, the union gives them a political voice. How are things unfolding in terms of, you know, the social equity program, which for everybody we uh, talked about in our first episode, but it's intended, um, you know, to give people most impacted by the war on drugs a leg up, but it's aimed, you know, specifically at ownership. So people who want to start businesses. Um, What are we seeing in terms of people who are employees at these businesses? And if any of this, you know, intended diversity might trickle down? Yeah, absolutely. Oftentimes, again, when we have these conversations, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, at the ownership level, you know, the diversity is sorely lacking. At the worker level, the diversity has and continues to be much wider, right? Mm -hmm. People, when I first tell them about this work, they're like, oh, so are you dealing with like, they think of the image of like mostly the trimigrant, quote unquote, the young college students who are working in you know, who go up to Humboldt and trim and things like that. I'm predominantly white college students. But the fact of the matter is that the industry right now is far more diverse in terms of its workforce. There's a lot of young people of color who work in the industry already. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about getting them kind of the recognition and voice that they deserve. And to also ensure that as the jobs get better paying, which is our hope, and as they get more professionalized and those skills get recognized, that they continue to get that kind of jobs. So one of the things that we've been advocating for, which is unique to LA's social equity package, is including a worker piece in there. Because we were very active in the process of organizing around social equity, both for ownership, but also for workforce development. So there are requirements in Los Angeles with social equity regulations that folks, whether or not they're a social equity business or not, have a plan to hire uh, what are called transitional workers. The transitional workers, it's kind of a phrase that came out of a lot of community benefit agreements in Los Angeles to be able to jump the hurdles of Prop 209, which is the anti-affirmative action. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what it does is it focuses on categories in which most low-income people of color are often, you know, intersect with. So homeless folks, formerly homeless folks, people who are formerly incarcerated, 
veterans, people in foster care, who all of whom tend to be predominantly people of color and low income. And so there's a requirement that out of those, there's about eight categories total that work, that about 10% of who they hire, these shops hire, or cultivation sites and so on, have to be from these categories. There's also a requirement that about, I think 20, the number is still kind of getting worked out, but there's also a local hiring requirement. So when people are building shops or cultivation sites in predominantly communities of color or in any community, really, they have to hire locally. And that way the industry can fulfill its promise to really transform Los Angeles' economy. And the other piece is fine to just give somebody a job and be like, okay, great. You know, you were formerly homeless. Here you go. Get it. You know, congratulations. But who is providing the kind of training and the kind of, you know, certification that actually helps people get jobs that have mobility? Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to make sure is while folks are talking about investing in incubators, we're really pushing and we actually have a lot of opportunity with Los Angeles Trade Tech and other local community colleges to create an apprenticeship and workforce development pipeline to create a certification program in these community colleges. No, that's that's really interesting because that's kind of the other big part of this is, you know, we talk about the different tiers, ownership and then employees. But then, like you said, you know, for a lot of these jobs, um, a certain level of training is required or at least helps you get to that next echelon of salary. Um, and so uh-huh. I'm curious, like, like what, what would this look like? Would it be like a trade focus certificate? Like you would get a degree in growing or in bud tending or like what would that look like actually? Yeah, actually, it's exciting because we're kind of building it as we go. Um, and we're learning a lot from um, folks who've been in the industry for a while. And the idea is to basically yeah, create a trade certificate for the beginning, um, not an AA yet, but at least a trade certificate that would generally, you know, adopt curriculum. There are several, there have been several attempts at this, and there are actually college-based programs in Oregon and Washington that we're learning from. And so these, the idea is to create a similar certificate program here that has recognition from the industry and that folks in the industry agree is kind of sets the bar and standard for, for example, a master grower mm-hmm. or um, a cannabis consultant uh, and gives folks kind of a holistic training. So one of the things, you know, that's been really amazing for me is learning from uh, butt tenders and cannabis consultants just how much they confront this range of human experience in terms of health and how they're seeing people with terminal illnesses, with mental health issues, and they kind of have to troubleshoot and figure it out on their own, a little training or exposure. And so a program like this would be an opportunity to give them kind of at least a basic grounding to, you know, deal with these kind of things. It's not necessarily like a medical certificate, but at least prepare them for the inevitability of some of those issues. All right, that was Robert Schlela, a social equity researcher and policy organizer for a local leading union in the cannabis sphere. That is it for Green and Gold this week. Thanks so much for listening. I'm so happy to have you here. Please feel free to send me questions and feedback on my Twitter, EP Fox. Um, I'd love to hear what's important to you and what you want to hear about next on the podcast. All right, until next time, buds. 